Thank you for inviting me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today. So what I'd like to do is um, two parts to this talk. In the first part, I'll give you what is sort of an unconventional uh, perspective on the Great Recession, how I look at it, which is, is definitely not the standard view. And uh, I think what I'm going to try to convince you is not so much that my view is correct, but rather my view should be the standard view of people that believed in conventional pre-2008 macroeconomics. And the puzzle really is why so few people thought this way. And in particular, I'm going to argue basically that a tight monetary policy by the Fed and the ECB created the Great Recession. Now, that's obviously not a very widely held view for a variety of reasons. But I'm going to argue it should be the standard view if we take pre-2008 macroeconomics seriously. Okay. Um, I don't think I should read this whole quote. You can look at it more quickly. But this something I came across a couple years ago. And I, and I love this because it beautifully encapsulates what I'm going to try to do, which is to get you to think about how we could look at recent events from a different perspective. And they might make as much sense or even more sense than the standard view that most people apply to the Great Recession. Of course, the standard view is that we had this, um, in the United States at least, a big housing bubble. It burst. We had a big banking crisis and essentially a global financial crisis. And this financial crisis caused the Great Recession, and central banks did what they could to moderate the severity of the recession. That's a very different view from what I'm going to try to convince you of. So um, here's just a perfect example. This is uh, from the very opening paragraph of a paper by Robert Hall, Journal of Economic Perspectives, a few years back. And I would like to suggest that both of these uh, statements are incorrect. That he's wrong about the Great Recession and he's wrong about the Great Depression. Let's start with the Great Depression. Um, the financial crisis occurred in 1931, not 1929. The Great Depression itself did start in 1929. Now, why is that distinction important? I would argue that he's reversed cause and effect. So the most plausible explanation for the financial crisis of the early 1930s is that it was caused by the Great Depression itself. In fact, it would have been a miracle if there were no financial crisis in the early 1930s because, for instance, in the US, nominal income fell in half from 29 to 33. If people are only earning half as much income, obviously they're going to have trouble repaying nominal debts. So the puzzle isn't why a lot of banks failed in America. It's why most banks didn't fail. That sort of shock in today's world would have created a much bigger banking crisis than in the early 1930s. What about this one? The great, the second worst uh, crisis struck in the fall of 2008 and the Great Recession followed. Well, the Great Recession began in December 2007 in the United States. Here, I think that it's a more complicated story, though. Unlike the Great Depression, there was somewhat of a financial crisis even before the recession started this time around. But it was not viewed as serious enough to cause a major recession. And um, Bernanke, for instance, was ridiculed later for sort of downplaying the importance of the banking crisis. But I think he was basically right. The severity of the crisis in 2007 wasn't severe enough to cause a big recession. And only when the Great Recession got severe in the fall of 2008 
did the financial crisis get much more severe. Um, this just shows you some monthly estimates of real GDP. So I'm going to use this going forward. This is June and this is December. So keep in mind that in the United States between June and December 2008, that's when the bottom fell out of the economy. And it looks exactly the same if you look at nominal GDP. Again, here's June and here's December. So what I want to do is think about what might have caused this dramatic fall in both nominal and real GDP in the second half of 2008. Oh, let me make one other point here. So Lehman failed in September of 2008, and keep in mind then the financial crisis that got much more severe occurred in the midst of this big fall in real and nominal GDP. Now, one argument that people make is that my story that tight money caused the Great Recession makes no sense because interest rates were relatively low during this period and therefore monetary policy was presumably expansionary. And what frustrates me is that I've never really seen this at all as being a conventional view on the stance of monetary policy. Since when is low interest rates a sign of easy money? I would argue only since 2008. Before then, that wasn't a widely held view. Here's Milton Friedman, for instance, basically ridiculing the idea that low interest rates are easy money, referring to the Japanese case. And then at the end, he said, I thought the fallacy of identifying tight money with high interest rates and vice versa was dead. Apparently, old fallacies never die. This was exactly my reaction in 2008 to the way pundits were talking about the Great Recession, making the same mistake. Now, it wasn't just Friedman, and I have a number of other quotes I'll show you. Um, you could write it off and say, well, that's just a monetarist view. But in fact, it's much more widely held than that. This is the number one monetary textbook in the United States. It's the one I taught from for decades. And in 2008, I discovered that what I'd been teaching my students, which I assumed was widely held among my fellow economists, actually was not widely held views at all. If you look at these three uh, points that he makes as sort of summarizing what he's basically trying to do at the end of his section on monetary policy, points that Michigan really wanted to emphasize, you'll see that these conflict very strongly with the conventional view of the 2008 crisis. He says it's dangerous to associate low rates with easy money and vice versa. People were doing exactly that. The last one, he says monetary policy can be highly effective in reviving a weak economy even if short-term rates are near zero. People were saying it can't be highly effective. So we were essentially ignoring the textbook view in analyzing the crisis in 2008. In the middle, we have other asset prices beside those on short-term debt instruments containing important information. So I'm going to show you a few slides on what other asset prices were telling us. And the punchline here is that basically almost every single other asset market was signaling tight money except nominal interest rates on government debt. Like that was the only thing that was not signaling tight money. So let's take them one at a time. Real interest rates. People will say, yes, nominal interest rates can be misleading, but surely real interest rates are a good indicator. Uh, no, they actually aren't a good indicator for various reasons, but if you believe real interest rates are the right indicator of the stance of monetary policy, look what was happening, 1% up to 4%. These graphs I'm going to show you are basically showing the second half of 2008, from like July to December. A big increase in the real interest rate on indexed bonds in the United States. Commodity prices in the second half of 2008 fell in half, again consistent with tight money. 
The real exchange rate of the dollar is especially interesting because normally during a financial crisis, as you know, a currency will collapse in value. Think of Thailand, Mexico, Russia, Brazil, all these financial crises we've observed in recent decades, the currency always plummets. There are only a few examples of currencies that strengthen when their own financial system is in crisis. And as far as I know, every one of those few counterexamples are associated with one characteristic, tight money. So what are examples of currencies that strengthened in the teeth of the financial crisis? The US dollar around 1931-32, tight money. Uh, the Argentine peso around 1999 to 2001, a tight money policy. And here's the US dollar strengthening dramatically in the second half of 2008, consistent with tight money. Stock prices crashed. Commercial real estate prices, which had not been affected by the subprime bubble bursting in housing, began falling. Residential real estate prices in parts of the country that had no bubble at all, like the middle part of the country, Texas and other states, now began falling. Tip spreads, which are inflation expectations, began falling. Every asset price you could look at, other than short-term nominal interest rates, was signaling tight money, and yet everybody was focusing on those interest rates as suggesting easy money. Ben Bernanke um, saying, this is back in uh, 2003, I believe, money growth is not a good indicator of whether mon money is easy or tight. Nominal interest rates are not a good indicator. The real interest rate is not a good indicator. Ultimately, you have to look at nominal GDP growth and inflation. So this is what Bernanke says we should use to judge whether money is easier tight. Now, the thing I find especially ironic here is even Ben Bernanke seems to no longer believe this. Because if we take this criterion literally, we had under his leadership between 2008 and 2013 the tightest money in the United States since the early 30s if we use Ben Bernanke's criteria. But by that time, Ben Bernanke was head of the Federal Reserve, and he was insisting that monetary policy was highly accommodative. If you'd asked him why, I'm sure he would have cited these factors that he said are not reliable indicators. What else could he have pointed to? He certainly couldn't have pointed to GDP growth in nominal terms or inflation. Um, and finally, the more sophisticated you know, Keynesian models, I guess you'd say, would say, okay, nominal real interest rates both can be misleading, but surely interest rates must matter in some sense, at least relative to the natural rate or the Vixellian equilibrium rate, whatever you want to call it. But if you do that kind of study, what you come up with is that the estimated natural rate of interest actually fell sharply negative in 2008 and continued to be negative throughout this whole period. And I don't have the actual interest rate, but of course in the United States the actual interest rate never went below zero. So this is a study by uh, Vasco Curdia. Uh, I don't know if I pronounced the name correctly, but essentially what he's saying is then money was tight in the new Keynesian framework because the policy interest rate throughout this period was above the natural rate. Another argument is that um, I'm ignoring the sort of real things going on in the economy. Like if you have a collapse in housing, surely there's going to be a severe recession. Actually, no, the data doesn't support that. Housing collapsed in the 27 months after January 2006. By April 2008, that's a pretty long period, 
housing construction had fallen more than in half in the United States. So most of the collapse of housing was already over by April 2008. Unemployment had hardly changed. We were essentially still at full employment. Why? Labor losing jobs in home construction was reallocated into the rest of the economy, which was still doing fine during this period. So nominal GDP and real GDP were still growing. And there's a little bit of a slowdown towards the end of this. But the big problem occurred during this period of, I guess, 16 months. Housing went down a little bit further. But now all the other sectors of the economy are going down because nominal GDP was falling at the fastest rate in many decades. And that's when you get the big increase in unemployment. So even a major shock to a major industry like residential home construction is not enough to have a noticeable effect on unemployment if it's not associated with um, a monetary problem. And you can find so many examples of this. The tsunami that hit Japan in 2011 did all this damage, shut down the whole nuclear electricity generating industry, etc. Doesn't show up in the unemployment data at all. But monetary problems in 2008 in Japan do. Uh, Brexit more recently. This was expected to have you know, an impact on unemployment. It's beginning to look like it doesn't because monetary policy was adjusted enough to prevent any fall in nominal GDP. Fiscal policy is often cited. But here's the problem. Now here I've got a graph of nominal GDP for the US, which is the red line, and the Eurozone, which is the blue line. Notice that they track each other fairly well in the initial stages of the Great Recession. Both fell in 2008 and 9. that period. Both began to recover. But starting around 2011, a pretty noticeable divergence opens up. What could explain that? The standard explanation is fiscal policy. So there was austerity in Europe. But here's the problem. There was just as much or even more austerity in the United States. The so-called austerity explanation doesn't work at all for the United States. In fact, it's even worse than that. Much of the austerity in America occurred in 2013. And there was actually a letter written by 350, or signed by 350 Keynesian economists saying, warning that this austerity in 2013 risked another recession. So the budget deficit came down from a little over a trillion to a little over 500 billion between 2012 and 2013. Big reduction. Growth actually sped up in the United States in 2013. So what is the difference then that could explain this divergence between the US and the Eurozone? It's easy, monetary policy. The Eurozone tightened monetary policy towards the end of the Trichet period um, in the spring of 2011. And basically, for two years, nominal growth just sort of leveled off at roughly zero growth rate, whereas growing about 4% in the United States. That was enough of a difference to create a divergence in real growth as well. So the Eurozone went into a double-dip recession as a result of that tight money policy. And the US continued to recover. The thing I find most amazing about the Eurozone is that I, I sort of understand why my story is hard to convince to people in the United States, because the Fed wasn't doing, quote, concrete actions to make monetary policy tighter. It was sort of airs of omission, so passive tightening, if you will. And that's always harder to see. 
So to convince people that tight money causes problem in the United States, I have to get them to think past the interest rate levers being the right mechanism for monetary policy. But in the Eurozone, I don't even have to do that. The Eurozone actually raised interest rates in the middle of 2008. The economy immediately went into recession. They cut them much more slowly than the United States. And then they get to 2011 and decide now's another good time to raise interest rates. Again, the Fed did not do that. They go immediately into a double-dip recession in 2011, and yet people still don't want to connect monetary policy in these two recessions, even though there were, quote, concrete actions taken by the ECB that the textbooks predict would lead to an economic slowdown. So that's, the, that's how hard it is to shake people out of this conventional view. Um, now, getting back to Friedman's quote about interest rates. So Friedman didn't say low interest rates mean money is tight. He said low interest rates are an indication that money has been tight. So if you have a policy that over a period of time is contractionary, it will lead to slower nominal GDP growth. That's what we've seen in Europe since 2011. And nominal GDP growth is probably the single most important determinant of longer-term nominal yields. So what happened is the U.S. and this is German actually, we use as a you know, proxy for Europe, yields attract you know, fairly closely. But then do you notice in recent years, the German yield is falling towards zero, whereas the U.S. yield on the 10 year is closer to 2%. What's going on there is Eurozone nominal GDP growth has moved measurably below the U.S. track. And so this near zero interest rate on the 10-year in the Eurozone is an indication that monetary policy has been tighter since 2011, producing slower nominal GDP growth. Uh, I call this my musical chairs model of the business cycle. So my explanation is, is pretty simple here. The nominal wage is sticky. So if you have a shock, an unexpected change in the path of nominal GDP, it's sort of like a game of musical chairs where when the music stops, you take a few chairs away, contestants are sitting on the floor. Do they have that game in Britain through musical chairs? So um, basically, if you sign wage contracts expecting 4% nominal GDP growth or 5%, and then suddenly nominal GDP is falling instead, a lot of workers will not have employment at those wage levels. So what I do is instead of looking at the real wage, I take the nominal wage and simply divide it by uh, nominal GDP per capita. <clears throat> Excuse me, that gives me the uh, blue line here. So it's kind of like real wages, but deflated by nominal GDP instead of prices. And you can see that shot upward. And then unemployment is the red line, and that went up in tandem. So what we're really seeing here with this blue line is the, the flip side of falling nominal GDP. Because the, the nominal wages are so sticky, they're not really changing that much in 2008 and 9. Instead of rising at, I don't know, 3.5% a year, they start rising at 3 and then maybe at 2% later on. They slow down a little, but the nominal GDP itself is moving very dramatically. Instead of going up at 5% a year, now it's dropping at 3%. So that's an 8% swing in nominal GDP growth. That creates this huge spike in unemployment. And then the labor market gradually recovers because wage growth since 2009 has been slower than nominal GDP growth. Um, this last bit here is what's called the profit recession in the last year in the United States. So profits have not done very well. 
And what's happened is unemployment has done better than the model would predict because um, this slowdown in nominal GDP growth this year is coming out of profits, not in terms of unemployment. So it's not a perfect uh, way of picturing it. And it's, uh, but anyway, so just to summarize, there's two nominal stickiness issues in the economy that are problematic in terms of nominal GDP shocks. One is nominal wage contracts. That's what I've been talking about, the musical chairs model. So because nominal hourly wages are sticky, when nominal GDP growth slows, you get unemployment. The other type of nominal stickiness is nominal debt contracts. Most debt contracts are in nominal terms, not real terms. And therefore, since nominal GDP is the total resources available to people, businesses, and governments to pay their debts, less nominal GDP means financial stress. Now, the thing I would like to emphasize here is that in any crisis, there's almost inevitably going to be one asset class that does especially poorly. And the mistake people make is to think the entire crisis is being caused by the worst performing asset class. And I'll give you an example for both the US and Europe. So in America, the asset that did most poorly is probably the subprime mortgages. Or at least that's the one that got all the attention. Although, if you actually look at bank failures, I believe more were caused by defaults on loans to developers than to mortgages. So that even there. But think of, think of it this way. If nominal GDP growth falls sharply, that puts pressure on all borrowers. So those that are most exposed, that have the riskiest loans, or the ones that in retrospect were most foolish, are going to have the highest default rates. But that doesn't mean the entire crisis is being caused just by bad decisions on a certain type of loan. Rather, that's sort of like the tip of the iceberg, if you will. And in fact, the crisis is mostly being caused by the fall in nominal GDP. My counter um, factual here is if nominal GDP had kept growing through expansionary monetary policy in 2008, 9, 10, and so on, there still would have been some stress in the subprime mortgage market. There would have been higher than normal defaults, but it wouldn't have created a full-blown banking crisis in the United States. Now, in Europe, the analogy would be for subprime mortgages, use Greek government debt. So even with no slowdown in GDP growth in Europe, perhaps Greece would have had financial difficulties associated with their excessive borrowing during the boom years. And you could picture, let's say, Eurozone nominal GDP continuing to grow at 4% a year, but a divergence where the richer countries like Germany were doing better than that and Greece wasn't doing as well and had debt problems. My claim is the big drop in nominal GDP growth in Europe took an existing problem in places like Greece and caused it to spread to many more countries that had not borrowed excessively prior to the recession. Places like Spain that had a very low debt ratio before the Great Recession. So again, don't make the mistake, at least this is my argument, of focusing on the worst types of debt in a crisis and assume that's causing the entire crisis. Uh, so here's my imaginary conversation with Wittgenstein um, and uh, instead of about the sun going around the earth and vice versa, uh, why do people always assume that the financial crisis caused the Great Recession? And at the end, here's the basic argument. 
what would it have looked like if it had been caused by Fed and ECB policy errors, which allowed nominal GDP to fall at the sharpest rate since 1938, especially during a time when banks were already stressed by the subprime fiasco and when the resources for repaying nominal debts come from nominal income. So my argument is basically this. The stylized facts I've been showing you are actually more consistent with this view of causation that sees the Great Recession is primarily a failure of monetary policy, and the financial crisis is something that was already developing in a mild way before those failures, but the failures of monetary policy made that financial crisis much worse than it otherwise would have been. So that's essentially the argument. Now, if I were to contrast that with the Great Depression of the 30s, which is something I did a lot of research on when I was younger, I would say in that case, it's even more true. So I would say almost 100% of the financial turmoil of the early 1930s was caused by monetary policy failure. That is, the economy was not in any sort of uh, fragile or disequilibrium state in 1929 at the point where nominal GDP started collapsing. It was virtually all tight money in that case. In this case, yes, there would have been financial stress even with good monetary policy. Maybe this metaphor works. It's as if we had a cold that turned into pneumonia, a viral infection that turned into a bacterial illness, right? Now, it might look to the average person like it was just a cold that turned into a bad cold because it was the same thing getting continually worse, right? I'm arguing that that's a very misleading way of looking at it. It looked to the average observer like we had a financial crisis in America, and it got more severe, more severe, and more severe. I'm suggesting that in the middle of 2008, the nature of the crisis changed from being an exogenous financial crisis to being a financial crisis that was an endogenous response to falling nominal GDP. It was worsening for that reason. So that leads to the second part of my talk. How are we doing on time? I have another half hour? Oh, I didn't know I had that much time. Good. Uh, and uh, if you want to interrupt me with questions, feel free. But um, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, the implications for nominal GDP targeting. So if this is the view as to what caused the Great Recession, I think one um, thing it suggests is we, we don't want to allow nominal GDP to fall very, very sharply. And as you may know, there's been an increase in interest in nominal GDP targeting in recent years. And one of the bloggers that I like reading, uh, um, Nick Rowe, had an explanation I think that makes more sense than any. He said he was originally in favor of inflation targeting. But when he looked at the numbers during the Great Recession, it simply looked like nominal GDP was a much better indicator of what he felt was going wrong with monetary policy than inflation. So inflation did fall somewhat in the Great Recession, but pretty quickly bounced back. And so by 2011, when I showed you the ECB raising interest rates and triggering that double-dip recession, by that time, inflation was back over 2% in the Eurozone. On the other hand, if you looked at the track of nominal GDP, it was still quite depressed relative to the pre-recession levels. So I think when people looked at those two time series, inflation and nominal GDP, that's really what created a little boomlet of interest in nominal GDP targeting. But anyway, some of the questions I'd like to consider, can a central bank control that? That's under a lot of dispute now because of the zero bound problem. Second, 
What's the advantage over inflation targeting? Why level targeting rather than growth rate targeting? I, I tend to prefer level targeting. Something called target the forecast and using market forecast to aid monetary policy. So um, I'm going to give you a little insight into a group of us that are called market monetarists. Um, and this is, we don't all have exactly the same view, but our group has developed a version of monetarism that's a little bit different from the traditional Milton Friedman and, and, and the others from the 1960s and 70s version. And what I would like to suggest is that basically, even though we come up with very unconventional ways of looking at these problems, our version of monetarism could be seen as just taking a lot of ideas off the shelf that are pretty widely accepted and combining them in a way that yields some rather unconventional policy implications. So for instance, I've already given you some quotes here about how low rates don't mean easy money, but that's something I'm constantly having to push back against. Another one is um, monetary policy highly effective at the zero bound. These, these same three names consistently argued monetary policy could be highly effective at the zero bound. In fact, my critique of the Fed during this period since 2008 in many ways is almost identical to Ben Bernanke's earlier critique of the Bank of Japan when Ben Bernanke was still an academic. He was making the exact same points. He was saying low interest rates don't mean easy money. He was saying the Japanese are not out of ammunition. There's much more they can do. He was saying it's, there's no excuse for them allowing deflation, these sorts of points. Um, obviously, things change when you become head of the Federal Reserve and your scope for action is much more limited when you're in a large bureaucracy. I, I do understand that, but it's still interesting to think about how the profession has changed. One of my favorite examples is Paul Krugman. As late as 1999, even after he had come up with his famous liquidity trap paper, a Brookings paper, Krugman was still arguing that fiscal policy uh, is not an effective stabilization tool, even at the zero bound. And then later, he changed his mind and said, well, I guess it is effective at the zero bound. And still later, and then he was saying, but it's not effective when you're not at the zero bound. And now he's saying it's effective even when you're not at the zero bound. So there's been this movement of what I guess used to be called New Keynesians back to old Keynesianism in recent years. Uh, level targeting, uh, Gabby Egertson, uh, Michael Woodford have papers showing how this can be very effective at the zero bound. Target the forecast, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this term. So this essentially is nothing more than common sense. It's saying central banks should set policy in a position where they expect to succeed. In other words, if they have some target, let's say 2% inflation is the target, each and every moment, their policy instrument should be set at a position where they expect to achieve that inflation target over the relevant time horizon. Now, not right away necessarily because there's lags, but let's say they believe in two years they can control the inflation rate. So their two-year forward inflation forecast ought to be equal to the target inflation rate in that kind of simple view. So this is the point that uh, Lars Svensson constantly made. And, and there was one point a couple years ago where I remember he resigned from the Swedish Central Bank in frustration that they weren't doing that. 
he kept writing more and more angry uh, sort of memos, dissenting on uh, is it the Riksbank is that the yeah, Riksbank policy stance because the Riksbank would ha Riksbank would have um, forecasts showing that the Swedish economy was not expected to do what the mandate of the uh, central bank was to do, which I believe was 2% inflation in Sweden. So <clears throat> that's something I accept. Where I differ from Lars Svensson is he prefers to target the central bank's own internal forecast. In other words, in his vision, if you have a 2% inflation target, the economists within the central bank will create a structural model of the economy and they will use it to set the instrument such that that model predicts on-target inflation. My own group uh, that I'm associated with, the market monetarist, prefers to use market forecasts. That's where the name market monetarism comes from. So our, in our vision, what you'd want to do is set monetary policy such that the market believes you'll succeed. But either way would be better than the current system where often central banks will set policy at a level where they seemingly don't expect to succeed. Certainly where the markets um, don't expect that. I could give you one beautiful example. Two days after Lehman failed in September of 2008, the Fed had a meeting, a regularly scheduled meeting, two days after Lehman failed. What do you think they did to monetary policy? Does anyone remember? You would think they'd ease monetary policy, right? No, they didn't. The target rate was 2% at that point. They refrained from cutting interest rates. In their um, minutes of the meeting, they cited um, worry about inflation as a reason not to cut rates. Now, we were already nine months into the Great Recession. Unemployment was rising rapidly. A banking crisis was developing. Lehman had just failed, and they did not cut rates. Remember that six-month period I showed you where the bottom fell out of the economy? During that entire six-month period, we were not at the zero bound. And often when I discuss this with economists, they'll say, well, didn't the Fed do all it could? You know, they, they had the zero bound problem. No, we didn't even reach the zero bound until December of 2008. So they were doing normal, conventional monetary policy, adjusting interest rates, all during this period of economic collapse. So they can't use the zero bound as an excuse. The European Central Bank was even worse. They were even further above zero than the Fed was. They didn't reach the zero bound till about like 2014 or something. I don't remember the exact date now. But the zero bound was not a reason for the monetary policy failure of 2008. Anyway, um, so we assume expectations are rational, asset markets are efficient, and um, the one we're most associated with is nominal GDP targeting and level targeting, but I think this is actually in some ways the least important aspect of market monetarism. Uh, for me, the exact target doesn't matter. You can make a, a very good argument for other fairly similar targets to nominal GDP. Uh, my own preference would be something like um, total nominal labor compensation in the economy. Something like that might be a little bit better for various reasons. Okay, so let's look at the question first. Do they have the power to? Well, one thing is that central banks are certainly not out of ammunition. Even if you take the most conventional form of monetary policy, which is buying government debt, there's nothing more basic than issuing new money by buying government debt. 
This is the amount of government debt outstanding in the United States, and this is the amount that's owned by the Fed. Now, this has gone up quite a bit in percentage terms to um, about $3 trillion, and this is graphs a little bit out of date. But nevertheless, the amount that the Fed doesn't own has been rising very, very rapidly because the total stock has risen much faster than what they've purchased. Um, another mistake I see people making is that um, they confuse, okay, low interest rates with easy money, and then this leads to sort of unjustified pessimism about the potency of monetary policy. So if you think low interest rates are easy money, or if you think QE is easy money, then you see central banks doing this, and you're not getting much effect, so you think, you imagine, well, imagine then how much more they would have to do to really have an effect. But I think people have everything reversed. In other words, the central banks that are doing the low interest rates in the QE are, in some respects, the central banks that have the tighter monetary policy. So in my vision, or even Ben Bernanke's vision, where he cited nominal GDP growth and inflation as the right measures of the stance of monetary policy, the Reserve Bank of Australia would be the country you'd point to with the most expansionary monetary policy, because Australia's had the fastest nominal GDP growth among the developed countries. Now, here's the paradox. Because nominal GDP in Australia grows faster than in other developed countries, nominal interest rates in Australia are higher and have been higher for decades than other developed countries. And because they're higher, Australia never hit the zero bound. And because they never hit the zero bound, they never did QE. So if you look at Australia to the average person, it would look like a central bank that's unusually contractionary, no QE, higher interest rates than other central banks. I would say exactly the opposite. Because monetary policy's traditionally been more expansionary in Australia, they have higher nominal GDP growth, that allows for higher interest rates without tanking the economy, and that means no need for QE. So the base, the monetary base, is only about 4% of GDP in Australia. In America, it's like 20% of GDP because of all the QE. And in even lower interest rate countries like Switzerland and Japan, the monetary base is still larger. So there's an ironic situation here where uh, countries that don't want to have a lot of expansionary monetary policy end up paradoxically doing much more of it than the other countries. I mean, why did the um, ECB in 2011 raise interest rates. Well, one reason they raised interest rates is they thought Ben Bernanke was making foolish decisions in America with all his monetary stimulus. And so they were going to do it the right way. They would raise interest rates. A direct result of that is today, Europe has lower interest rates than the United States because that raising of interest rates lowered nominal GDP growth. Eventually, the ECB saw they had to accommodate that or they'd have a Great Depression, so they reluctantly brought interest rates all the way down, and they're much lower in Europe now than the United States. Switzerland, same kind of mistake in early uh, 2015, and I'll talk about this more later. Uh, the Swiss Central Bank um, was tired of accumulating all these foreign reserves, pegging the Swiss franc at 1.2 to the euro. So they decided to let the Swiss franc float. But in the long run, this is going to backfire because it'll just make the Swiss franc even stronger. 
which will make it even more attractive to foreigners. So foreigners will want to even invest more money in Switzerland, and the Swiss bank will then be buying more and more assets in the future, trying to keep the value of the Swiss franc from getting too strong. So this is led to a very sort of bizarre um, debate, I guess you could say, that's mostly, I guess, in the blogosphere. Roger, you can fill me in if I'm wrong on any of this. And it's, it's a new view called the Neo-Fisherian view, which is in contrast to the Keynesian view. So the Keynesian view is, in, in very simple terms, other things equal lower interest rates or easier money. And on any given day, that's true. If the Fed decides to cut interest rates on Tuesday, that means money is easier on Tuesday than if they didn't cut their target rate on Tuesday. But over a longer period of time, it's more often the reverse. And because it's more often the reverse over a longer period of time, the correlations I've been describing have led to this neo-fisherian view, which is that, in some sense, the low interest rates in Japan are a cause of their deflationary environment for these, in these recent decades. And what I'm going to suggest is that both of these views are sort of missing part of the picture, that you can't really talk about interest rates in any coherent way as telling us anything about the economy unless you back up and ask first what caused the interest rates to change. In other words, low interest rates might be a result of more expansionary monetary policy, or they might be a result of more contractionary monetary policy. In the case of the Eurozone in Japan, I would say that the slow nominal GDP growth is the major reason for the very low interest rates in those two regions. So the punchline here is if you look at the low rates and all the QE and get pessimistic about monetary policy and you say, wow, they've done so much and yet we're still not seeing much, imagine how much more they'd have to do to have any stimulative effect. If that's how you're looking at it, you're looking at it the wrong way. It's not a question of do more, it's a question of do different. We have to have a different approach to monetary policy, more like, say, the Australian system, where they seem to effortlessly get higher nominal GDP growth without, quote, doing a lot of concrete actions like QE and zero interest rates. And this requires, I think, a major rethink of, of what we're doing. So um, I'm going to talk briefly about the Swiss case in January to give you a little bit of my insight into uh, why people get confused on this Keynesian versus Neo-Fisherian. So in January of 2015, the Swiss simultaneously let the franc float, which meant it appreciated like 10% or so, almost overnight, and they cut their interest on reserves from a quarter point negative to 75 basis points negative. Right. Now, this cut was intended to be an expansionary monetary policy um, to sort of cushion the blow of what the Swiss Central Bank understood would be the contractionary impact of the Swiss franc appreciating strongly on the same day. So it was sort of trying to cushion the blow of a stronger franc. But if you think of these in both level and growth rate terms, ultimately it added up to a contractionary policy. So what do I mean by level and growth rate? Think about basic monetary theory. You can do two things with the money supply. You can do a once and for all up or down move in the money supply, and you can do a change in the growth rate of the money supply. So growth rate shifts and level shifts can occur. And the effects those will have on interest rates are different. So generally, like if you do a 
growth rate shift to a faster pace of growth in the money supply, you'll get faster inflation, and because of the Fisher effect, you'll get higher nominal interest rates over time. On the other hand, if you do a one-time increase in the money supply, then through the liquidity effect, that will reduce interest rates. And I think what happens in the real world, central banks are sort of like feeling their way along in a very uncertain environment. And when they make changes, it's often not clear whether they're doing the first step on a growth rate change or a simple level change. So it's often hard to interpret movements in interest rates as either an easier tight money policy. So we're looking at the wrong variable. We look at interest rates hoping we can ascertain what they're doing with monetary policy, but it really depends on whether it's sort of a level shift or a growth rate shift. Now, let's contrast what the Swiss did with the typical case of a monetary shock using Dornbush's overshooting model. In the typical case, if the Fed just does an easy money policy, like when they adopted QE1 in March 2009, the very day QE1 was announced, the dollar fell six cents against the euro. Right? So normally what you have is if you have like a central bank that cuts interest rates, the currency depreciates. So here we've got the Swiss cutting interest rates sharply, but the currency is appreciating 10% that day. So what the Swiss actually did was two completely separate monetary actions on the same day to create this very unusual situation. Whereas often what central banks will do is they'll just do one thing and simply let the exchange rate go wherever the market wants it to go. And if they do one thing being easing monetary policy by cutting their target rate, usually the currency depreciates. Now, what I'm going to argue is if you want an expansionary monetary policy, you have to do the, not the, the sort of normal thing, but the opposite of what the Swiss did. So let's say that Japan wanted to get out of their liquidity trap and have some inflation and so on. Well, one way they could create inflation would be to, say, peg the Japanese currency to the U.S. dollar because we target inflation at 2%. So if you peg the currency of the dollar, then at least in the very long run, purchasing power parity will tend to push Japan's inflation rate towards 2%. Not right away, but you know, in the long run. But there's a problem with that. If they peg their currency to the US dollar, then interest parity, which doesn't hold perfectly, but you know, holds to some extent, will tend to raise Japanese interest rates up to American levels. Right? If we, if we know these two currencies are going to be fixed for decades, under a new Bretton Woods, Japan should suddenly have 2% 10-year bond yields instead of the 0% they have today. Now, wouldn't that be a contractionary shock to their economy? So the trick would be the J Japanese would do a one-time level shift. They would suddenly depreciate the yen by, I don't know, say 20%, and from that point forward, fix it. And then the contractionary effect of the Japanese higher interest rates would be offset by the expansionary effect of the one-time depreciation. And that's how you calibrate how big this number should be. It has to be big enough to offset the contractionary effect of the higher interest rates in Japan. So this isn't a model or anything. This is just sort of my intuition of how you think about monetary policy, not starting with interest rates, but starting with more fundamental decisions about levels and growth rates and seeing how it all fits together. Um,
Okay, what's wrong with inflation targeting? Um, well, this will be kind of simplistic, but I'll give you my two cents worth here. Um, the so-called welfare costs of inflation, I believe, are actually better proxied by nominal GDP growth. For instance, in my view, one of the biggest welfare costs of inflation is you have excess taxation of capital income when you have high inflation. But that's, if that's true, then you ask, have to ask, well, where is that coming from? The returns to capital are probably more closely correlated with nominal GDP growth than inflation. You know, think of the difference between China and Japan in the early 2000s. Both had near zero inflation, but China had like 10% real GDP growth and hence 10% nominal GDP growth. And China had much higher interest rates than Japan. So I would argue that nominal GDP growth actually correlates better with the returns on capital. Also, sticky wages are one of the problems. Wages correlate better with nominal GDP growth than they do with inflation. So, yes, the menu costs would cut, cut the other way, but um, that's one argument I would make. Second, uh, the standard argument, it's easier to understand inflation targeting. I think this is exactly backwards. It seems like the public ought to be able to understand inflation targeting, but they simply don't. And one piece of evidence for this is that in 2010, Bernanke announced that the Fed was going to try to increase inflation, which was then about six-tenths of a percent, up to 2%. So everybody on the news was suddenly talking about Bernanke trying to increase the cost of living of Americans. This didn't go over well in talk radio, I can assure you. And you may think it's obvious that we have this symmetrical target and 3% inflation and 1% are equally bad because we're missing the 2%, but that's not how the public looks at it. They look at inflation as if all inflation is supply-side inflation. In other words, in their own mind, their own nominal income is fixed, so inflation means lower living standards. That's literally true only if it's supply-side inflation. Bernanke was, I'll take your question in just one second, Bernanke was really trying to create demand-side inflation. But when you create demand-side inflation, real GDP should go up which means nominal incomes should rise even more than inflation does. So Bernanke was naively thinking the American people would understand that he was trying to increase their real incomes by boosting real GDP, and inflation was a mechanism for doing that, but that's not at all what people took out of this. So uh, I don't think the public really understands. If he had said, I'm trying to boost Americans' incomes because Historically, we've noticed that when Americans' incomes rise at 4 or 5% a year, the economy does well, but when Americans' incomes fall, we do poorly. People could have understood that more easily than the inflation. Go ahead. Wouldn't the trip be just to choose your basket differently? You just put in all labor in the country in the basket? Um, and you say you do inflation targeting on, on, the, on the nominal the, wage or something? Yeah, the total nominal wage, you say all the labor is a basket. Yeah, but what I find is I actually think nominal wage targeting has a lot going for it. Um, the difficulty there is selling it to the public. When I talk to non-economists, they don't distinguish between real and nominal wages. Yeah. So you and I may think that in the long run it's a given that real wages will go wherever they're going to go and you're just trying to stabilize nominal growth. But the public would start to see that as the Fed being sort of the Grinch that tries to hold down Ameri hardworking Americans' wages. And if wages start to rise a little, they tighten monetary policy to prevent wage increases. 
and they would think it's an attempt to redistribute income from labor to capital. That's what I worry about anyway. I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I like your argument. I don't know. But, what you mean you're trying to have more inflation than you should talk about uh, increasing labor. You were trying to have less inflation to talk about. Oh yeah, use, you just use different explanations, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, I've already mentioned this argument. The labor and the debt markets, because of wage stickiness and nominal debt stickiness, are better stabilized, I think. Why level targeting? Why not growth rate targeting? Um, okay, here, uh, I would say several things. First of all, I think it would be more credible. Um, one good example is in Japan, um, there was this long period from about 1993 to 2013 where Japan had, on average, extremely mild deflation. I mean, it was averaging less than a half a percent per year. Now, in, in some sense, Japan was coming very close to its inflation target, which was roughly zero at the time, by the way. But they were missing on the downside a little bit. And if they had had a level target, over time, they would have been under more and more pressure to, uh, they would have to do more and more to return to the trend line. So imagine, for instance, you undershoot by a half a percent each year for 20 years. Now you're 10 percentage points behind the line. On the other hand, let's suppose you have a price level target, and every year you miss your price level target by a half a percent. Okay. Interestingly, in that case, although you will have missed your price level target by a half a percent every year, the growth rate will be essentially exactly on target. So essentially what would happen is your price level would drop a half percent behind the trend line, but then the growth rate would be exactly right going forward. Um, so you would actually, if you believe growth rates are what really matter in some sense, by aiming for price level targeting, they might have come closer to getting the appropriate growth rate than by growth rate targeting, where they were missing consistently in one direction. Um, the argument I like better, though, is that it creates more stabilizing expectations. So I believe that if the Fed had announced in the middle of 2008 that something to the effect of, we're in a rocky period here with a financial crisis, we don't know what's going to happen to the economy in the near term, but we're committed to returning to that 5% trend line for nominal GDP over the next few years if we do have an unforeseen recession. We're committed to coming back up to that trend line. Then asset markets would have priced assets on the basis of what those assets like real estate would be worth once we came back to that trend line in a few years, stocks, real estate, and so on. And asset prices would have fallen, I think, much less sharply in the second half of 2008. And in my view, the failure of banks like Lehman Brothers, you might wonder why, why would the failure of Lehman Brothers have anything to do with nominal GDP? So here's what I think happened. In the second half of 2008, sometime around September, October, markets correctly saw that despite Ben Bernanke's academic writings, the Fed had no plan to prevent a big drop in nominal GDP or to bring us back to the trend line after it occurred. And that market perception turned out to be correct. You saw that in places like the tip spread. Remember the meeting I mentioned two days after Lehman failed, where the Fed was worried about high inflation? The day of that meeting, 
the TIPS markets were forecasting 1.2% inflation over the next five years. 1.2, that's well below the 2% target. The Fed was forecasting above 2% inflation, and that's why they didn't ease monetary policy. So the markets saw the bottom dropping out in nominal GDP well before the Fed did. And as the markets saw that happening, asset values got marked down very, very sharply, stocks, real estate, all sorts of assets. And investment banks that were highly leveraged saw the value of the asset side of their balance sheet falling sharply, and, and that was one of the things that probably led to some of the bank failures during that time period. So if you have level targeting where you promise to come back to the trend line, that's going to create uh, more stabilizing expectations. And if you do dip for a period of time, then the expectation that you come back to the trend line will create higher inflation and nominal GDP growth expectations. And that will tend to lower the uh, real interest rate for any given nominal rate. That's one of the reasons New Keynesians like Michael Woodford like the idea of level targeting. They understand that at the zero bound, it's a way of uh, ensuring an ability to lower uh, real interest rates automatically when you dip below your, in his case, price level targeting. Um, okay, um, how to make it operational? So you could just you know create a Taylor rule type system with a reaction function using nominal GDP instead of you know, uh, real output inflation separately. Um, wouldn't be that different from the actual Taylor rule. I've talked about target the forecast as an alternative. Central bank forecast, which is what Lars Svensson wants to do. And my own preference for using market forecast. Now here's where things get a little bit complicated. There is no market for nominal GDP right now. And I constantly argued that we need to create a market for nominal GDP and, if necessary, subsidize it because the information is so important embedded within that. Uh, in some sense, um, let me back up. People will ask me, well, does the Fed really care that much about what nominal GDP forecasts are in the marketplace? Well, my response would be, if you look at the minutes of Fed meetings, they actually talk about market forecasts of very flawed proxies for that. So nominal GDP is the best single data point for what they're trying to control, aggregate demand, total spending. They don't have that, but they do have inflation forecasts embedded in the tip spread. So in the meetings, they'll often talk about market forecasts of inflation. But we know that market forecasts of inflation can reflect both demand-side inflation, which the Fed should be very concerned about, or supply-side inflation, which they usually sort of accommodate and, and assume will go away after a year or so. And nominal GDP growth would be a much better um, expectations variable for them to observe, but we, we simply don't have that market. It would be very easy to create. Companies, corporations, often create prediction markets to forecast things like sales. Mm -hmm. Roger. Yeah, so um, one of the things that um, I really like about your work uh, is something I was confused about earlier. And when you started writing about normal GDP targeting, I just assumed that you simply meant uh, the first one is bullet points, which is that you would raise the interest rate or lower the interest rate through conventional means uh, in response to 
technology, the people who were sort of powerful with the growth rate. But then I read a piece you wrote, which is much more centered on the last year, yeah. um, and it's quite close to the things I've been arguing about. So my question for you is this. Um, I can see three alternatives to uh, your third policy here. One is create a market for energy technology features. Another is something that Bob Schiller's talked about, which is financing government through what he calls trills, which would be, uh, instead of long-term government debt, they would be uh, objects that would pay off a fraction of normal GDP. So now the advantage of that is that there would then be people active in that market. It'd be kind of like an inflation index bond, except indexed to nominal GDP rather than inflation. Right. Yeah. And the third is something I've argued for, which is the creation of an exchange traded fund over the stock market, mm -hmm. and buying and selling that uh, instead. Yeah. And I wonder if you can comment on which of those three you would find most effective and why, uh, and if you indeed see much difference between them. Well, they'd probably all be an improvement over a current policy. Um, I guess on the one about uh, stock indexes, um, I'm a little bit reluctant there because I don't. We don't have a lot of evidence um, about the correlation between stock prices and the macro variables we care about under that kind of regime change. In other words, it's sort of the Lucas critique issue I worry a little bit about. Like we we know that um, right now there are times when we have a severe recession like 2008 and 9, and generally when that occurs, stock prices fall sharply, as they did. And it seems plausible that if you had a monetary policy that would have prevented a sharp fall in stock prices, the recession would have been much milder, maybe not even occur at all. That seems plausible. But we also know that in the recovery period, there was an enormous growth in the stock market that wasn't really associated with the rapid growth in nominal GDP. In other words, uh, stocks became more attractive, or the pricing of stocks changed for reasons other than nominal GDP growth in the 2009 to 2015 period. And unless we have a better understanding of why that is, I worry a little bit about tying monetary policy to something like that where in contrast with nominal GDP expectations, I feel much more confident that if we stabilize nominal GDP expectations, actual nominal GDP will be relatively stable, not perfectly stable, obviously. But it's hard for me to imagine actual nominal GDP plunging 20% in the next three months if we expect 12 months from now it's going to be 4% higher than today, let's say. So. Um, on the difference between uh, the bonds and the, just the market, I like the market, the futures market, better than the bond approach because one criticism of tip spreads is that there's a difference in liquidity between a regular treasury bond and an index treasury bond. And that liquidity difference, especially during a crisis, can distort the spread. So it doesn't necessarily give us a pure read on inflation expectations. Now, that's also a possible criticism of what I'm proposing. Um, but on the other hand, um, and this is a point that uh, the former Fed President Kutcher Lakota made, um, when that risk spread gets larger, 
is often telling us sort of the same thing. But let me go back to the late 2008. So um, if you look at the tip spreads, it looked like inflation forecasts just absolutely plummeted in the second half of 2008, all the way into negative territory going several years out. Some people argue they didn't actually fall that far. People weren't expecting three or four years of deflation. What actually happened is the spread was being distorted by huge change in the risk premium. But what Katri Lakota said, that's just an alternative reason to ease monetary policy. That is, if it's deflation, you'd want to ease monetary policy. And if there's a huge increase in the risk premium, you'd also want to ease monetary policy. So the argument cuts both ways, and I don't have a a good answer, but um, let me show you the specific technique I'll propose in the end, which is a fairly moderate, uh, less extreme one than my initial proposal. My initial proposal was to have a sort of um, automatic system where um, essentially the market would set everything, the money supply, interest rates, the Fed would it'd be like a gold standard, but replacing gold with nominal GDP futures contracts, and the Fed pegs the price at the goal, say, 5% growth per year. And so if people expect more than that, they go along, and the Fed has to take the other side of the transaction. That automatically changes the monetary base until the public, on average, expects on-target growth. Um, and, uh, and I still think that would work. And um, I don't know if I have time to get into some of the objections here. Uh, the circularity problem, by the way, was one early criticism of this approach. Are we out of time? Okay. Let me just um, cut to the chase. I think that the, the best thing to do is to do something more modest, where if you have a 4% growth target, you have a range, which I call guardrails, and the Fed simply commits to take long or short positions to anyone that thinks we're going to have more than 5% or less than 3%. So the Fed will take a short position. Anyone wants to go long at 5 and the Fed takes a long position for anyone who wants to go short at 3%. And that sort of keeps the central bank honest. And it's also like sort of an early warning system of monetary policy being off course. Like sometimes when a truck will back up, there'll be this beeping noise, like it's getting too close to an object. You've made, I don't know if you've seen that. And the more modest version I have is just having these guardrails at 3%, 5%, if the market suddenly starts loading up on one side or the other, the Fed is going to be aware that the market forecast is that they're going to move outside that range. The Fed has two choices then. They can be arrogant and say, we don't believe the market. We're going to take all those shorts or longs, whatever, and continue on with our current policy. But then if the Fed is wrong, they have enormous capital losses. Or the Fed can play it safe and you know, move policy to where they're within that range. That still gives them a 2% range to be discretionary within that range, but it essentially says if you want to move your discretionary policy to where the market thinks it's less than three or more than five, you, the central bank, have to be willing to take a bet against the market. You know, we're giving the, the Fed essentially a huge advantage, a two-point uh, advantage over the market. Anything within this, you know, they can come out ahead. So um, anyway, that's where I end up. But I guess um, I think I'm out of time here. Uh, so OK. Thank you. Um, I think we have time for a couple of questions. What, do you want to take this question? Yes, right. go ahead. 
small uh, historic question. So uh, around the time of financial crisis, I heard a lot about shadow banking. Uh -huh. And uh, we can get rid of that. Basically, free banking could also be a way to make the uh, target, level target uh, free banking, mm -hmm. like Canada used to have. Okay. And it was actually the shadow banking. The shadow banks were quite prominent back then. It was actually sort of trying to, was the demand for money that the shadow banks were trying to uh, fulfill? Um, you mean during the crisis? Yeah, a bit after there was lots of like, economists wrote a lot about like shadow banking and shadow banks. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, there's so many ways of sort of like interpreting what went on in different models. I mean, if from a monetarist perspective, uh, one story you could tell is that uh, during a crisis there's a demand for liquidity. So if that's not accommodated with an easier monetary policy, it's contractionary for the economy. That's sort of the simplest way of explaining it. Uh, although ironically, and again, very few economists bother to look at the data, the initial recession in America was not triggered by a fall in the velocity of base money. It was triggered by, in an accounting sense, a slowdown in the supply of base money growth. And, and you know, it's seen the other way. So people don't look at the data, they just assume, oh, it was a velocity story, not a money supply story. It was a velocity story from the middle of 2008 on. You know, huge fall in velocity, and the Fed did QE to try to offset that. But the initial onset of the recession in 2007 and 8 was actually associated with a sharp slowdown in the growth rate of the money supply, and velocity didn't slow down at all. But because people don't look at the monetary base, and, and, I, and I think probably they should, you know, a good reason not to focus on the monetary base, they just assumed that it was a fall in base velocity. That only kicked in starting in the middle of 2008, and that I think is due to what you say, the, uh, the banking system really uh, wanted a lot more liquidity during the crisis, and so that increases the demand for money. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks for a very interesting talk. Um, you appear at one point quite sensitive to the uh, Australian National Bank. Yeah. Um, uh, as a kind of model of good policy making in this area. And yeah. I'm just wondering, um, a very obviously boring question, which is, isn't the Australian economy completely different in the economic context completely different? It's really, it's really a kind of natural resources play yeah. for the last 50 years. And wouldn't that change the nature of uh, expectations for GDP and all GDP and all the rest? Um, there might be some truth of that, but I would say only for certain sub-periods. So here's how I look at it. If you're a natural resource economy, your economy is intrinsically more unstable than a highly diversified uh, economy like the US or Britain. And that's because the commodity sector of the global economy is much more unstable. So you're more susceptible to real shocks than the US or Britain, if you're Australia. Now, the grain of truth is there may have been some sub-periods where they lucked out, with, say, Chinese demand for their commodities, and that helped them a little bit. But if you're asking, is that really the fundamental factor? I would say no. Here's what I think is really going on. So the nominal GDP growth in Australia has been higher than other developed countries for two or three reasons. One reason is their inflation target's a little higher. Another is that their population growth is significantly higher because of immigration. And perhaps their productivity growth was a little bit higher because they were doing a lot of economic reforms in recent decades and becoming a more efficient economy. Or maybe it was just the luck of 
the commodity boom. But for whatever reason, their trend nominal GDP growth was about 6.5%. Now, and it was like a little over 5 in the U.S. and maybe 4, 4.5 in the Euro, Europe region. The nominal growth slowed a lot in the U.S. It slowed a lot in Europe. In Australia, it slowed briefly during the crisis, but it came back. And I think that's one of the main reasons Australia really avoided a serious problem. Um, they also were starting from a very high peak before the recession, so their economy was very strong because of commodities. And so even though they had a little bit of a dip, it was dipping just back to, say, the natural rate. But those higher nominal GDP growth numbers, in a sense, have nothing to do with commodities. I mean, the population growth rate is higher. That's due to immigration policy. The inflation target is just a number chosen by the government. Most countries pick 2%, Australia picked 2 to 3% range, and so on. So, I mean, you could just, the zero bound problem in one sense is really easy to solve. You could just raise your inflation target. If you raised it enough, you would definitely avoid a zero bound problem. That's not my preferred solution. I prefer nominal GDP targeting. But uh, essentially, Australia, was perhaps lucky, but not so much because of commodities, but rather these other factors. Uh, one, one last more? question. Okay. So, uh, one difference between your presentation on monetary policy and some commentators is, is around the lags. Um, so you focus very, very short term mm -hmm. about the impacts, and I mean other people talk about long variable lags. Right. Policy. So, um, I mean. Uh, where did that idea, if, if you're right that you're based in, in, in the pre-2008 orthodoxy, where did the idea of long variable lags come from and how did your... Okay, good point. So I think it came from a misidentification of monetary shocks. So essentially the, the key story I'm telling here isn't about nominal GDP, it's about we don't identify monetary shocks correctly. We don't see them. And. It took, for instance, 30 years for Friedman and Schwartz to convince the economics community that there was a negative monetary shock in the early 30s. So I spent my life studying the Great Depression. I noticed that the shocks then were much bigger than today and easier to identify. And when the shocks were the most big, largest, and easiest to identify, there seemed to be no lag at all. Like when FDR devalued the dollar in uh, the spring of 1933, Output and prices just started shooting up immediately with the devaluation. And that was true for other monetary shocks also during the interwar period, which were much bigger and easier to identify. So I think that Friedman and Schwartz and other monetarists misidentified monetary shocks, concluded there were lags because they were looking at the wrong data points, and the Keynesians just sort of bought into that. And um, the Keynesian model, which relies on interest rates as an indicator of monetary policy, misidentifies monetary shocks because they have the wrong indicator of the stance of monetary policy, and that leads to these, uh, the belief that there's long and variable lags. That'd be my explanation. Thank you very much. And, Thank um, you.